We're nearing the end of a series entitled Encouragements from uh, 2 Corinthians, and we find ourselves in chapter 5. And as we're finding our way there, uh, just a reminder that on Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently studying in the Minor Prophets. So we finished Hosea last week, and we'll be studying Joel this evening at 6 o'clock. So you may say, there's a Joel in the Bible? Yeah, there's a Joel in the Bible. Not Billy Joel, there's, it's a, older than that. And uh, so that's why we go through it, that's why we study it. So um, if you haven't never studied the book, um, that's what we do on this evening. Everyone's invited, of course. Uh, chapter 5, verse 18. Paul writes, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's half, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray together. Father, it's a very interesting um, season in our uh, nation in which all of us are experiencing presently where confidence in institutions and departments of government and, and all kinds of things in all directions, there's a, an absolute collapse in, in a confidence that we can receive the truth anywhere hear something that hasn't been politicized or an agenda added to it. And so we're so grateful to turn to your word today and to have it to turn to where we can always find truth. Nothing murky, no agendas, uh, certainly no dark agenda, no unseemly agenda on your part, only an agenda of love. And we're glad to be able to turn to this in the midst of the chaos and hear truth by your Holy Spirit spoken into our lives. And we pray that you would speak to us through these handful of verses this morning and help us to hear your voice, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week we studied in verse 17 of this same chapter where uh, the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul wrote one of the most famous verses that speaks to what happens to a Christian in the moment that they're born again. And in verse 17 Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is, every single Christian is a new creation with two results that old things have passed away and all things have become new. And then in verses 18 through 21, the Apostle Paul does something uh, fascinating to me. In fact, he cracks me up in this regard uh, on uh, this because he's, he's spoken this wonderful thing about what happens to us as Christians in verse 17. 
And it appears that Paul isn't quite ready to leave the glory of this miracle that God has accomplished in him and accomplished in every single Christian and uh, without spending some time uh, examining and glorying in the theological foundation of this miracle in our lives, without examining the theological substructure uh, to this glorious truth. The Apostle Paul never went into any city and said, listen, uh, I believe in Jesus. I believe He's the way to everlasting life, and so you should too. Because if we did that today, and if He did that in the ancient world, everyone would look at Him and go, why exactly am I supposed to do that? What's the foundation for this? You're asking me to do it just because you say you've done it? It wouldn't make any sense to us at all. And so when Paul went into the cities that he went into established churches, we're told that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He didn't just share the gospel with them, but he shared the biblical foundation, the foundation that God has placed under the gospel, under his message of salvation that he has delivered to mankind. I think that when we see a beautiful building or a beautiful skyscraper, say the Empire State Building in New York, Karen and I were there one time and we went over there and walked some distance to get to it and then we were going to go up to the top and 28 bucks, no way, I'm a Scot, I'm not paying that. We could buy five pizzas for that. That's not really what happened. You had, to, you had to get reservations and all this kind of stuff to go up. But it is this marvel of Art Deco architecture. And you look at it, and it is so beautiful looking at what it is above ground. <clears throat> but of course, we recognize that we can only see this beauty and appreciate this beauty because it's undergirded by a foundation that is uh, equally a marvel to what we see above ground. And the engineering marvel that it is, how many stories are below the ground, how many miles of electricity and pumps and, and, uh, 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 and uh, tunnels that are, are in there in order for us to appreciate what's above the ground. Of course, we go to Disneyland, it's the same thing. And you go there and you pay a fortune. Have money on my mind today. So you pay a fortune to go in, and it is, it is a magical kingdom. And you get on, and there's these rides, and you, it's just eye candy everywhere you want to go, and thrills in your stomach, and all this kind of, of thing, and it's amazing to look at it. But what we see and what we pay money to engage in would never be there. It could never exist except for the foundation that is literally a small city immediately underneath the ground, and tunnels and cables and pumps and all kinds of things that undergirds what it is that we're able to see. And Paul could seem to almost never talk about the beauty of the salvation that is ours that is so obvious and evident without also telling us about how sure and equally amazing 
the foundation of that salvation uh, is. We've experienced the spiritual birth. We are new creation uh, creations, and Paul's mind is filled with the wonder that is uh, in all of that and what it is that uh, is obviously seen by us, but the foundation of it all as well. It is fascinating to realize in these verses that uh, Paul makes an especial emphasis upon God the Father related to our uh, salvation. You notice in verse 18, he says, now all things are of God, speaking of God the Father. In verse 18, God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. In verse 19, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Verse 21, for he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. And I think that very often God the Father gets lost a little bit in terms of our salvation. We recognize what Jesus has done, and he's at the forefront of everything, and, and we recognize what he's done, and we do so wonderfully uh, so. But I think that God gets uh, a, a little bit lost uh, in it, and we can be less conscious of his part, God the Father, in our salvation. So among other things, this passage is very helpful in that regard. And there's no division within the Godhead related to this. There's no jealousy between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as it, as it relates to this. Jesus himself, in the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16 declared, for God so loved the world of our salvation, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I want us to notice and really marvel at this theological substructure of our salvation as Paul lays it out. In verse 18, he says, all things are of God. And that is that our salvation, our becoming a, a new creation, everything else that is ours as a result of being Christians, it's a work of God. It is the product of His love. It's a product of His wisdom. It's the product of His power. And it, it originated entirely in Him, Paul is telling us, and it has occurred solely at His uh, initiative. And we could have never, ever accomplished it in and of ourselves. You and I could never have sat down and even begun to assess the greatness of, our, of the need in our own life, much less in the lives of all of the human beings in the world, that we wouldn't even recognize the consequences of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, how big our salvation should be, how multifaceted it should be, all that it needs to overwhelm in terms of our past and our present and our future. We would have no hope of coming up with our, our own ideas about what is required to even be saved, much less to attain to our own salvation and our own strength and righteousness. We owe our salvation, the entirety of our Christian life, the, the overwhelming, again, of our past, present, and future uh, to God himself. So it's important that we never think of God as some kind of distant, um, disinterested 
uh, deity, that he's always kind of slightly angry with all of us and angry with the world, and he wants nothing to do with mankind because of our sin and our rebellion, but he's grudgingly been talked into providing us with salvation by Jesus, who is the nice part of the Trinity or the triunity. He's, he's the nice and loving, caring part uh, of the Godhead. Now, again, uh, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Paul goes on in verse 18 and says, God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. And so that raises the question, what does that mean? What does it mean uh, to be uh, that God has reconciled us to himself? The Greek word that Paul uses here for reconciled, it means to change, it means to exchange one thing for another. It means to make things right with another. Our English word reconciliation comes from two Latin words that carry the same exact meaning. There is the re, which means back, and conciliare, which means uh, bring together. And so it means uh, to bring back together. And all of this speaks of, in this reconciliation, it speaks of the reestablishment of a personal relationship after somehow that personal relationship has been broken. Uh, it has been disrupted in some way. And Paul, uh, since uh, he uses the word to refer to God's relationship with man, it must mean that previously mankind had a relationship with God. And that once man was on good terms with God, but something has disrupted that relationship. Something in human history broke that relationship. Which, of course, takes us all the way back into the Garden of Eden with Adam and uh, Eve and their, their sin there. When previous to their sin, uh, they and mankind with them were on good terms with God. And then after their sin, the relationship was horribly horribly broken. But when we put our trust in Jesus for salvation and we recognize Him alone to be the means of this reconciliation with God, we recognize Him to be what the Bible calls a propitiation, to be the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins, then we're born again, and as a result of being born again, this reconciliation occurs. Our relationship with God has been changed from one of a hostility toward Him, one of rebellion toward Him and against Him, to now one of love and peace and having a friendship relationship uh, with Him. It is important to notice that this reconciliation was initiated by God. And why in the world is that important? For many reasons. One of which is the fact that God was the innocent victim in the breaking of his relationship with man. He did not sin against man. He did not betray or violate man. In any way in this relationship, it was Adam and Eve that sinned against him and betrayed him in the relationship and violated him uh, in the relationship. 
And all of it's captured in that verse among, I think, one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible. When uh, the Lord, we're told in Genesis chapter 3, he was walking in the midst of the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, apparently a time of special fellowship between him and Adam and Eve, but they hid themselves because of their sin from him. And then Genesis chapter 3 verse 9 says, and then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Where are you? And that violation of the relationship, come to fellowship with them in that garden. And he asks them, where are you? There can be no reconciliation in a relationship unless the party that has been sinned against is willing to reconcile. And reconciliation always costs the most. It always demands the most of the innocent party. They have to be willing to give a fresh start to a relationship that had a rocky beginning. And Paul writes of the wonder of all of this in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 8. I'll read it to you. He said, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were, en when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Only God was in a position to initiate a reconciliation with man. Man has no capacity to accomplish this in and of ourselves, and it would be the height of pride um, if we uh, could, uh, thought that we could, that somehow we could initiate that, uh, that uh, reconciliation with God. And yet this idea that reconciliation can happen on our side toward God rather than God's side toward us is the foundation to most religions within the world. It can never happen that way. God must reconcile us to himself. Uh, in the same vein of reconciliation, notice as well that it is man who is reconciled to God, not that God is reconciled to man. And the reason for this is because, again, he is the innocent party in the death of the relationship with man. The death of this relationship was due to our sin, our misbehavior, and he does not need to be reconciled to us. We need to be reconciled to him. And again, all of this emphasizes the greatness of God's grace toward us in being willing to enter into a personal relationship with mankind again and with us uh, individually. Well, somebody might say, oh, I like this. I like this reconciliation thing. I, I like happy endings and all's well that ends well. 
And we can kind of look at a doctrine like reconciliation, and it's a very, very exciting, wonderful uh, <clears throat> doctrine, but we can treat it casually and, uh, and with barely a hint of gratitude uh, concerning this incredible uh, skyscraper of reconciliation that God has built uh, in, in the Scriptures. And as a result of that, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the substructure. He reminds us of the enormous personal cost to God in order to accomplish our reconciliation with Him. And he does so in three words. In the words, through His Son. And he speaks a mountain in speaking about the fact that the price that needed to be paid for our reconciliation was His Son. In, in, in verse 21, Paul reminds us of this price that had to be paid for our reconciliation to occur in order for you and I to have a relationship with God, to have what we treasure most in life as a Christian, a relationship with God. And again in verse 21, for he that is the Father made him that is Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God uh, in him. And there's a term that's given to what this verse is talking about, and it's talking about several things, but this, what was required in order for us to have this reconciliation is what is known as the substitutionary death of His only begotten Son in order to provide us with, uh, with this reconciliation. It required God the Father uh, making Jesus to be sin, that is, for Him to bear our sins on the cross, for Jesus bearing our sins on the cross uh, and to do so though sinless Himself. And why is it important that He's sinless? Because only someone who is sinless can die for the sins of someone else. Uh, if He was a sinner, He would need His own Savior. You have to be sinless to provide a Savior related to uh, sin. And then Paul tells us here that God has done this in order that we as sinners might become the righteousness of God. That is, that we might be perfectly righteous in putting our faith in Jesus for salvation. And in the moment we are born again, not only do we receive the forgiveness of our sins, but the righteousness, the right onness. Uh, the rightness of God, the perfection of His rightness, the Bible says, and of Christ, is imputed to us. It is put to our account so that when God looks at us for the rest of this life and all of the life to come, He does not see our past sin. He does not see our present sin. But positionally, He looks at us and He sees the righteousness of Christ when He looks at us, a perfect righteousness. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel to allow people like you and me who are so far from perfect every single day. And God knew we would need this kind of a righteousness to be put to our account in order to have a relationship uh, with, uh, with God. And this beautiful, beautiful imputing of Christ's righteousness to us. 
Now, in this context, in, in verses 18 through 20, Paul declares each of us as Christians, everyone who's been reconciled to God, uh, declares us to be ambassadors for Christ. Now, in the ancient world, an ambassador was very much what an ambassador is today. An ambassador would be sent uh, from one kingdom to another kingdom, from one nation to another nation. And when the ambassador would leave uh, the nation of his origin, the kingdom of his origin, sent by the king to go to another uh, uh, kingdom there, that he would go to that foreign land, he would live in that foreign land for the sole purpose now of representing the kingdom that he had come from, representing his king, representing his nation, representing uh, his kingdom in that, that foreign land. And I think it's a wonderful way of looking at ourselves as Christians in this world, to recognize that God himself has commissioned us by virtue of this reconciliation. He has commissioned us to be ambassadors of God. And you think about the eternal meaning and significance that that adds to our lives. And sometimes God places us in some very obscure parts of the world, obscure neighborhoods, obscure places in terms of where we work or whatever it might be. And yet God adds this dignity to each of our lives that we don't just go to work, we don't just go to school, we don't just live in the neighborhood that we live in, but we are there as ambassadors of God. We are there to represent a king, to represent a kingdom, the recognition that we are in a foreign land and representing that king and kingdom in that foreign land. And that foreign land is this world that, that, we, that we live in. And so we're citizens of heaven, and yet as we uh, live in this foreign land called the world, we do so with the strong desire of properly representing our king here and, and his kingdom, that is the kingdom of God. And it's uh, more than a wonderful way of looking at things. It isn't just pretend. Here Paul tells us we've been commissioned as Christians to do this. Of course, the marks of ambassadors are uh, pretty well uh, uh, known. They are uh, men and women who are under authority and they accept the authority of a kingdom and a king uh, over them. They go where they're told to go. They deliver only the message that they've been given uh, to deliver. They don't go into the embassy of, or uh, head of government and then just declare whatever it is that they want to say. They don't deliver the message of the king that they come from and say, listen, I think it's crazy too. I wouldn't take it seriously. No, they go in and they deliver the message that's been delivered. No opinions, no editorial comment uh, related to uh, 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 any of it. And they live as, as a result very circumspect and disciplined lives. An ambassador uh, walks and talks and and breathe with one great uh, thought foremost in their minds. I must be circumspect about my life. I must be careful about my life. Because once it's known that I am a Christian, as an ambassador for Christ, I am now representing a king. 
It is no longer just Damien and Kyle showing up on a scene in, in whatever scene in life and just being whatever I want to be. I represent a king. I represent a kingdom now in every environment that I walk uh, into, and there's that recognition that I want to represent it well. It doesn't mean that we're all stiff. It doesn't remember uh, that, you know, we're all formal in that way, but there is that recognition that, that I am representing something bigger than myself in every environment that I go into. There's a mantle that we wear as Christians, and it does something healthy in my life, and I know in your life as well, to look at life uh, in the way that Paul calls on us to do uh, here uh, as, as well. And so the, as ambassadors in, uh, for Christ, uh, it, it's important we elevate the proper representation of our king, of this kingdom, above all else uh, in this world. What's fascinating to me is that here God uh, provides reconciliation to mankind. He, but he then delivers to us the message of reconciliation. You look at the enormous price God paid to provide this salvation and this message of reconciliation. And then he entrusts us as ambassadors to make it known and all of the environments that we find ourselves in in life. In other words, it, it can seem crazy on his part, but he knows what he's doing. He takes this thing, this gospel, this message of salvation, and he puts it in our hands, and he says, all of this I'm putting in your hands in terms of it going forward in the world. And it's an awesome responsibility and it's an awesome, awesome uh, privilege. I think that sometimes we, when we, uh, 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 it, it, Paul describes there in, ver, in verse 18 on through 20, again, he describes the message that we're to carry as ambassadors for Christ. And the message is a simple one. We've been reconciled to God ourselves. We now have a personal relationship with him, and we're to let them know the good news that God, uh, that, that, that they can come to God as well, have their sins forgiven, and enter into a personal relationship with God, no matter what their past, no matter what their, their sins. The message is God is eager to reconcile with you, to have a personal relationship with you. And you begin that relationship by trusting in his son uh, uh, as, your, as your savior. And then to implore them to put their faith in Christ. I think that sometimes uh, we, we can, uh, sharing God's offer of salvation c with people can get a little complicated in our minds, but it's not that complicated. So we hear the Great Commission, we're supposed to fulfill the Great Commission and, and make disciples of all nations, and we can get all fumbling in, in our minds. The message is very simple as Paul lays it out here. Our sin has separated us from God. God loves us and he wants a relationship with us. And he's made a way, and he's made a way for that to happen by putting our faith in his uh, Son. And then the conversation uh, goes where it, it, uh, it, it, it might go beyond that by the Holy Spirit. 
But the message is so simple, and it keeps the main thing the main thing. Sometimes people feel like they've got to start in Genesis. You mind if I share something with you from the, the Word of God? God has an offer for you. Oh, yeah, I'll give you a minute. Okay. Well, you know, back in Genesis, in terms of the typology of Christ, beginning back in, in there an hour later. Now, in Exodus, would you notice here, and, this, and then four days later, they're just getting into the New Testament. And people don't even know how to get their minds around any of it. But when we come in and we speak this message of reconciliation to people and the simplicity that it is, they leave with that message. They leave walking away with an understanding that Christianity is above everything else about a relationship with God. And that, in all of the clutter of what people think about Christianity, sometimes from their own wrong way of of listening to people and they have very misguided views of Christianity or been misrepresented by us as Christians. So being a Christian can be a very complicated thing in people's minds. But when we leave them with a message as simple as that, now they have the gist of it. Now they have the core of it because Christianity is about a relationship with God. That's the whole thing behind uh, the, the term of reconciliation. And, and uh, so they leave us, and that's the one thing that they're left thinking about. Now, in delivering this great news to people, we are not only supposed to, Paul calls us to deliver as an ambassador would, uh, the message accurately, but we are also to properly represent the heart of our king in doing that. You notice in verse 20, he said, as though God were pleading through us. And so by pleading with people, by imploring them, and, and it speaks of doing so with the same heart of love, the same heart of personal concern for them that God has for them. The word pleading, it means to encourage or to ask uh, earnestly. There's an urgency about it, the recognition that in any given moment, my opportunity to receive the Lord into my life and begin this relationship can be gone. Death can come to any of us in an instant in this life. And so there's that sense of that urgency in it, imploring, Paul says, which means to ask or to beseech. It means, I beg you, please. And so there's, there's an emotional engagement in this. And that's why he didn't have angels deliver the message of reconciliation. He doesn't have a lost world deliver the message of reconciliation. Who can take and deliver a message of reconciliation uh, with God and, and to do it with a passion, to do it with a, a, a heartfelt engagement except someone who's already been reconciled? So the message is never to be delivered to people in some kind of unemotional, detached kind of a way, and uh, who cares whether you accept it or not, hurry on, hell ain't half full, and uh, on in your life, and, 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 and this kind of a, a hasty, mindless delivering of, of God's offer. It's to be delivered with sincerity and humility and with love and no pride or arrogance talking down to people. That's not what ambassadors do. 
It's to be like Christ. But we know experientially what we're offering to people, and it will come across, and it's why this ministry has been given to us. Now, I know that in a pluralistic society and that we live in and, and has become increasingly hostile and intolerant to the idea of any absolutes in life and, uh, and anything uh, certainly that declares itself to be absolute truth. And nowhere is that uh, uh, more than when somebody declares to be saying the absolute truth about something uh, spiritual. And so uh, there is a, this is an affront to our culture. It's an affront to um, the indoctrination of our culture. And so being an ambassador for Christ isn't always easy but we are ambassadors nonetheless to make known to people this is what God offers to you through His Son, to begin a personal relationship with Him. And so this kind of negative uh, attitude uh, that people have uh, toward uh, truth as an absolute, certainly spiritual truth, that's kind of the main obstacle we can face in this culture related to being an ambassador and sharing uh, this message. In other parts of the world, they don't even run remotely into this kind of nonsense in their culture. Uh, To be an ambassador there is going to typically might meet a a beating. It might be some kind of a physical persecution that is is brought uh, against them. But no matter where we are, Paul is telling us that we are to do it. God has provided reconciliation through His Son and has entrusted that message to us to make it known. And I think it's good to just stop and ask ourselves and to just speak between us and the Lord and to ask Him in the light of what Paul calls us to here. Each of us knows the degree to which we're operating as Christians as an ambassador but to look and say, Lord, would you uh, open up a door? Would you uh, uh, open up an opportunity for me as your ambassador? I thank you for all of the ways that you give me in terms of my life and my conduct and how I present myself in my workplace and my school and my neighborhood and all, but would you open up a door for me here uh, and make me aware of it, give me the boldness to go through it, and let people, uh, let someone this week know about this and to operate in this capacity within my life. I don't want this to be just words on a page. I want this to mark my Christian life. And then watch what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Without a doubt, we'll have an opportunity in, in, in uh, the, the coming week for most of us. And so, here this morning, we look at the theological substructure uh, that Paul operated from when he talks about salvation and being a new creation uh, and, and, and the, the substructure of God's wisdom behind this, the, the substructure of his, the power of God that's behind our salvation is just a marvel and, and it's a, a, a wonder. And so again, it isn't just believe in Jesus for salvation because I said so or because it's what I believe. It's, it's, not, non, it's not blind faith at all. 
And when we see passages like this, and there are so many passages like this um, in uh, the Bible and especially in the New Testament, it makes us realize that our salvation, the gospel, reconciliation, is an absolute masterpiece of God's wisdom and His power and His love. And this redemption and being bought out of the world and out of the slavery of the world in the same way that that the children of Israel were redeemed out of Egypt, we're thankful for that redemption the forgiveness of our sins. We're thankful for the forgiveness of sins. One day we're going to end up in heaven as Christians. We are thankful for that confident hope that is a part uh, of, of our uh, lives, all of it by virtue of being born again. But I know we're comparing priceless diamonds one to another. But even in terms of all of those things, perhaps the greatest of all is this thing that Paul talks about here, beyond redemption, beyond forgiveness, beyond the hope of heaven, is this thing called reconciliation. That we have been saved to have a relationship with God. Yes, we've been redeemed, but to what end? Yes, we've been forgiven, but to what end? Yes, we have the confidence of heaven, but to what end? Because without, what would any of those things be without the relationship? And the old saying is, the relationship is everything, but the old saying is, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And there's a lot of truth to that, and it keeps the, the focus and the priority uh, where it ought to be. It's about a relationship uh, with God. And so praise the Lord for this reconciliation and uh, a relationship with God that is uh, what uh, he had with Adam and Eve at one time, and now he offers uh, to us. This whole thing with um, this doctrine of reconciliation. And one of the reasons that it's so important is it is very easy as a Christian over time, dependent upon the decisions that we make in life or whatever it might be, for Christianity to become about everything but reconciliation, everything but the relationship. I'm confident in my redemption. I'm confident in my forgiveness. I'm confident that one day I will be in heaven one day. But I neglect the relationship aspect of Christianity. I neglect that part of Christianity. And if I am in the middle of a Christian life, to have all of those other things, the redemption, the forgiveness, the hope of heaven, and to miss the relationship is to miss everything. That's what this is all about. And what got broken in the Garden of Eden was a relationship. And that's why reconciliation had to occur to be reconciled, not to become theologians 
or mere students of all of the blessings of Christ's forgiveness and His death upon the cross, but in order that we might have a personal relationship with God. That is the single great characteristic of all of these wonderful, wonderful pieces of the superstructure that lies beneath the salvation that we glory in. And it's important for us to make sure that as Christians here today, that if we've got that mixed up somehow in our minds or in our lives, and now my Christianity has become about a million other kind of things, or really me just knowing I'm going to heaven and uh, one day and uh, no sobriety related to being an ambassador or all these other kind of things, and the relationship lies neglected. Just the realization that's what it's all about. And everything else builds around that. So the importance of reconciliation to Paul, the, recon the importance of keeping the main thing the main thing in Christianity, and the main thing is the relationship with God. Not only that we'd be saved and forgiven, but begin a relationship with Him, which is the most precious part of our salvation and is what we, we view and we treasure most of all as Christians. What good will heaven be one day if there's no relationship with God there? You see it. You see how important the, relation is, the relationship uh, is and how wonderfully Paul brings it out here in order that we would recognize it's important, it's foundational important, importance to Christianity, but also to our own personal Christian life. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, I feel like in talking about some of these things today, the, Redemption is so glorious in its own right and so jaw-dropping and forgiveness and the hope of heaven and your work of sanctification, all of these things. I know I'm comparing infinitely priceless jewels one against another. But today, this morning, in this place, as we study this passage, we just give you thanks for this reconciliation that you initiated, a restoration, a, 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 a reconciliation and a relationship that had been broken and, and that we had no hope of reconciling on our own. And we thank you, Lord, that this Christian life isn't just a lot of knowing a lot of things about you, knowing a lot of things about the Bible, but it is about a personal relationship with you to be able to wake up each morning and have you be our first thought and our first conversation begin with you when it happens in the middle of the night, when our hearts are broken, when trials come into our lives and how immediately we resort to that relationship. Thank you, Father, for making this relationship available. 
And we thank you in the name of the one who made it possible. In Jesus' name, amen. If you stand here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front, and they would love to pray with you to begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ this morning and, the, and, and to experience the spiritual birth, to experience the relationship with God that you have been created for. And without that relationship, nothing in life will satisfy you. Nothing about life will make sense to you. You've been created for a relationship with God. And once you click into that place, the reason you've been created, now everything opens up for you. And we urge you to be and beseech you this morning to be saved this morning. If you need prayer for anything this morning, they would love to pray with you and for you as well.